I entitled today's message, What Do You See? A challenge to engage with what's been revealed. And I want to begin with a concept. I've heard this a lot, and so I'd like to engage with you on this. The concept is this. Man, it would have been way easier to believe in Jesus if I lived when he was around. If I would have been the people that he ministered to, it would have been so much easier if I would have seen the miracles and seen the incredible stuff and maybe even got a chance to walk with him. That would have been so much easier. I keep hearing the word easier, and I think that that's a misnomer. I don't think that that's right. I think that's a bit ignorant. Let me ask you, what's harder, to learn something or to relearn something? I think relearning is a lot harder than learning, and here's what I mean. In today's world, in modern day America, we're so far removed, many of us grew up without any religious instruction whatsoever, that all of a sudden we're given a brand new bit of information, which is, you're dead in your sins, you need a savior, right? And once we digest that concept, the next step is easy, because then we turn around and say, well, who's that? And what's the response? Well, that's Jesus. And you go, oh, okay, great. And then you engage with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is a much more smooth transition than being an Orthodox Jew in the first century when you've been trained up your whole life in religion. You've been trained your whole life to expect a certain sort of Messiah, and Jesus doesn't fit the bill at all. How much harder is that? Everything you've been taught is slamming head to head into who Jesus is. Now what's more difficult? How about growing up where you know his family? How about growing up in a small environment where you're around all the people and you knew what school he went to, right? How difficult is that when the Messiah is tangible and you know he was once a little kid? All I'm telling you is that a lot of times we long for something that I'm not so sure we really want. I think that for the Orthodox Jew, Jesus is a massive problem because they do believe in a Messiah. It's just he's not right in their eyes so they have to unlearn a bunch of stuff they've been taught and then relearn all this stuff about christ wouldn't you imagine that as a jew there would have been an awful lot of doubts that jesus was who he said he was don't you think well how many doubts do you got probably a lot too right i think that you doubt i you better doubt if you're thinking critical critical thinking what human so do you doubt? What do you doubt about? Well, I want to begin with a quote by John Burke, who wrote this book called No Perfect People Allowed. He said this. He said, consider John the Baptist. And that's who we're going to study today. He heard a voice from heaven declaring of Jesus. This is my beloved son. That's pretty cool. You get an audible voice from heaven. Yet when his life turned south and John was staring through the bars of a prison, he started to doubt. Isn't this true of us as well? In the Bible, you do find those who had absolute certainty. But those who never doubted, struggled, or wrestled with what it meant to do the will of God were not the heroes of the faith. They were the Pharisees who crucified Jesus. Wow. Do you doubt? I think you do. As a matter of fact, I think all of us must doubt. I think it's part of the gig. It's how it's got to roll, right? As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say the fill in the blank in front of you, which is this great men doubt. Now, of course, that involves women as well. I just didn't want to go slash women. Okay, you get it? Great men and women doubt. Why? For they live by faith. Great men and women live by faith. If you live by faith, what is faith? Faith is being certain of what you do not see. 
Therefore, you live in a world of the unseen. You live in a world of the invisible. You worship and love that which you have not engaged with tangibly. How in the world does that not breed doubt? Yeah, on most days, you feel strong, you feel confident, you move forward. But what about the bad days? What about the, bad, the days when things don't seem to line up or things aren't quite the way you expected or God didn't pull through the way you hoped that he would? What about then? What about when you engage with a brand new paradigm in your life where Jesus turns your world upside down? You're not so sure that it's right. Do you doubt? Of course you doubt. We all have different doubts. Welcome to the group. What I doubt with, what I deal with in doubt, you might not. What you deal with, I might not. For example, I do not, I, I can, I cannot remember the last time I ever doubted that there was a God. I, I just, I just don't. That's not my thing that I wrestle with. To me, God's uh, un, unassumed. I actually don't doubt at all that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God. What I do doubt is whether or not I'm in line with Jesus as Messiah. That's my biggest fear. It's not a doubt about God. It's not a doubt about Jesus. It's a doubt about me, right? Do I get it right or does I completely screw this whole thing up? Am I completely off base? What do you doubt with, right? What do you deal with? What is your problem? What's your doubt? Is it intellectual? For you, it's kind of like, well, you know what? I don't know about this whole God thing and I don't know. And there's a, maybe there's nihilism. And what about the other religions of the world? And what do you doubt? I mean, you go through this, the Bible's not reliable or whatever. I don't know what you're wrestling with. What about the dinosaurs? What about science? What about this? Right? Is that what you're wrestling with? Because everybody's got them. Everybody's got doubts. What are you doing with your doubts? Because you're going to have them. You're bringing them to Jesus? You're working through them? You're trying to sort them out? Or you're just allowing them to keep you away from your Savior? That's really the question. We begin this passage in Matthew chapter 11. Would you turn there with me? Matthew 11, 1. It's page 688 in the Bible's handed to you. Matthew 11, 1, page 688. We begin with a story that is very possibly about doubt. And certainly what you're going to learn today may create some doubt. That happens when we engage with the word of God. Now, I'm just going to read the first three verses, then we'll pray for the word and then we'll get started. And I'll kind of tear it apart and tell you what I see. It begins in chapter 11, verse 1, saying, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, which is what we studied last week, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, meaning John the Baptist, heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Kind of an odd question for a man that heard an audible voice from God. Or maybe it's not so odd at all. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves under your teaching today. Lord, from your word, I ask that, Lord, that which I speak to all of us that's wrong, they'd forget. I pray, Lord, that we'd only remember the stuff that you said. That really, Lord, that you would engage with our heart afresh, direct, not through a man. I pray, Lord, that you would illuminate scripture so that we can get it. That we can engage with it and be changed by it. The only reason we are here is because of your mercy, your grace, and your power. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it begins like this. After Jesus finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. All right. For some of you, you're brand new to the Bible. You're brand new to this church gig. And so you're not quite sure what we're talking about. All right. Real quick. 
The way the Bible talks about it is it talks about regions and it talks about towns or villages or cities. Okay, in other words, if I said to you Placer County, you would understand that's a region. And then I said Rockland, you would understand that's a city in the region. All right, same thing. Jesus did the majority of all of his life, 33 some odd years, in one tiny location called the region of Galilee. So he did most all of his miracles there. He did all 30 years before he started his ministry there as a carpenter. He did everything there. It was in one small area around the Sea of Galilee. But in that region, there are a number of cities. So, for example, if you're reading in the Bible and it says Jesus was in Galilee, then he went to Capernaum. He didn't go to a different area. Capernaum is in Galilee. Just understand and it helps it a little bit when you're reading. So he's traveling about doing what? Teaching and preaching in the towns of Galilee, just doing his ministry. Then verse two, when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, pause, who's John? John the Baptist. Why is he in prison? It's almost like the author, Matthew, just moves on. Anyway, so you know how John was in prison? You're like, no, (laughs) no, I really don't. Why is he in prison? That's kind of weird. Well, he's going to tell you in chapter 14. So, yeah, we could wait to a couple of weeks to figure out why he's in prison or I can go grab that and rip it out and move it up here, which is what I'm going to do. So here's how it works. Here's the snippet and then I'll read the account. Basically, there's the area that we would consider the Israeli area was broken into three different territories and it was handled by three different brothers. So you had Herod, King Herod Antipas, and you had King Philip, his brother. Then you had Archelaus. These are the three guys that are in this region. Now, King Herod begins to scam on his brother's wife. All right. Creepy. Yes. Okay. Here we go. Track with me. Now he looks over. Hey, your wife's hot. Maybe I should divorce mine and grab yours, which is exactly what he did. Steals his brother's wife, makes it his own wife. Her name is Herodias. All right. Now they're now a couple. Problem is who lives in his area. But John the Baptist, Mr. I don't keep anything quiet. I think I'm going to tell you what I think. So what did John say? You're out of line. You're sinning. Knock it off. Well, you don't tell a king that without going to prison. All right. Now we know why John's in prison. Okay. So John was standing up and saying, that's bogus. You can't do that. That's against God's law. You're wrong. Now, Herod is not a believer. And it's not like John was going, well, you know better than that. No, he just said that's flat out wrong. And I'm not going to stand for it in my territory. I realize you're king and I'm not, but I'm still a man of God. And I'm telling you it's wrong. You're doing it wrong. Stop it. Well, you, kings don't like hearing that. So here's how the story was recorded in Matthew 14 and in Mark 6. If you mush them together, it would sound like this. Now, Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to him, meaning not once, saying means over and over. Hey, you're wrong. Hey, you're wrong. Hey, you're wrong. Hey, you're okay. At some point that gets irritating. So you throw him in a cage. John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Now at that time, Herod didn't consider him to be a prophet, but he was freaked out about public persona and pressure. Okay. He's a politician. Now, so Herodias, his wife, his brand new gal, 
nursed a grudge against John and she wanted to kill him. Of course, everyone wants to kill John, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. In other words, eventually it sunk in. And now he began to protect this guy. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Okay, now this is saying so bizarre. What happens is you mess with my life, you irritate me, I throw you in jail. Now that you're in jail, I'm going to go visit you in my little cage. So I'm going to go up and go, hey, John, what's up? Well, I'm in prison. How are you doing? Uh, well, I'm doing better than you. And then they start a conversation and he says, tell me a little bit about what you think. And he would tell him stuff. And, and the whole time Herod's thinking, man, you're fascinating. You freak me out, but you're fascinating. I like having you around. It's kind of nice. And he begins to kind of tie into this guy and they establish kind of an odd relationship. Well, meanwhile, his new wife hates his guts wants to find a way to kill him. This is the scenario that we have just entered into. And Matthew is assuming, you know, what's going on. So it says this, when John heard in prison, what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples. Now Luke tells us he sent two of his disciples because he had followers as well. He sent two of them to go ask Jesus a question. He asked him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? That is odd. Why did John ask the question? Now, first of all, when he asked the question, he knew what he was asking. The one who was to come is an actual quote of a title for Messiah in two different Psalms. So he's asking an Old Testament way of saying, hey, are you the Messiah or not? Can you please confirm? Now, why did he ask that? Well, I've studied about six commentaries in preparation for this. And guess what? They all got a different opinion. Okay. Nobody knows why. So here's some of the guesses. Number one, John is freaking out. John knows he's going to die. And now he's saying, you know what? I'm in a complete panic because nothing seems to be fitting. And I'm not so sure you're the Messiah. Can you please tell me if you are or not? That's one read. That's clearly John Burke's read, right? The second read would be something like, well, John was totally convinced, but John knows he's going to die and he wants his disciples to follow Christ when he's gone. So he sends them with a question so they get a confirmation right up front from Jesus Christ. So when he leaves, they transition into his stead. Okay, that's another option. The third one is that John is saying, hold on, I preach something totally different than what you're doing. And. Anybody remember what John's message was? He had basically one word message and then he followed it up by scare tactics. What was his message? Repent, right? Repent for the Messiah is going to show up. And when he shows up, he's going to burn you all alive. That was basically John's message. So all of a sudden Jesus skips into town and he starts going, I'll heal a little leper here. I'll do a little demon casting here. I'll do a little. And the whole time John's like, oh, dude, timing. Come on. When are we going to burn people? What are we doing? Okay, because clearly I've been screaming my guts out for years now that you're going to come in and burn people and no one's burning anyone. So I'm having a hard time with what's going on. Can we please move it forward? Now, some commentators believe that was what he was encouraging Jesus to do, which is kind of like, man, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. Are you the one or not? In other words, speed it up. Okay. Why did John ask the question? Nobody knows. Here's my guess. Right. Because now suddenly I'm brilliant and I get an opinion. All right. So I get to guess. And here's my guess. The way I've noticed is that life is usually multiple motives. Right. Usually things are far more messy than one particular point of view. Here's how I read it. In my opinion, I would suggest that John 
has done for years what God asked him to do. And it wasn't exactly lining up with what he was seeing in Jesus. And so in his heart, he's thinking, God, I am 99% sure that I did everything right. But I want to make sure I heard you right, because I think I did, and I did everything you asked me to do. But now I'm in jail, and I'm hearing this contradictory stuff. And as much as I know I heard your voice, I'm starting to doubt, because I'm wondering if I somehow got it wrong. Because his vision and my vision don't seem to be lining up. So, Lord, before I go... Would you please just confirm for me what I hold to be so true in my heart? You are the one, right? I think that's a little bit more likely. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus replied, verse 4, go back and report to John what you hear and see. In other words, he did a bunch of miracles right in front of them. He's almost saying, hang out with me for 24 hours. Let's go do my ministry. And then I want you to go back and report to John the proof and evidence that you see. In other words, I know it will not be sufficient to John or make him feel any better if I just tell you, yep, I'm the Messiah. It's like, oh, well, Jesus thinks he's the Messiah. So that solves everything. I said, no, that's not cutting it. Tell him what you see and what did they see? The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those that have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, John, you ever read the Old Testament? Okay, now, do you think John read the Old Testament? I think John had the Old Testament memorized. He said, hey, you remember uh, Isaiah 35, 61? Do you remember any of those chapters? Right, guess what I'm doing? Exactly what prophecy said I would do. It may not be what you want. It may not be what you expected, but I'm right on track. And I just need you to see the evidence. Don't listen to the words I say. Watch the actions of my life. You know who I am. Pretty powerful. Then he says this other phrase, almost as if instead of telling John this, it's like he says it while they can still hear him. And yet he's saying it to the crowd. He said, blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of me. In other words, you will be blessed if you don't bail ship just because I don't fit your paradigm. Okay? So how did that story go? What, what happened to John? Well, was John facing death? Indeed he was. You go back to that combo of Mark 6 and Matthew 14, and here's actually what happened. Finally, the opportune time came. On Herod's birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. The daughter of Herodias danced for them. Pause. Who? His stepdaughter. Are we all good on that? Ew. All right. I cannot overemphasize the creepiness of this. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced... She pleased Herod and his dinner guests. She pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Quote, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. That's a dance. Yeah, I don't know how you dance, but it ain't like that. So I don't know what this girl did. But in front of everybody, her stepdad tells everyone, you're the greatest. I'll give you up to half. Now, will he give her half his kingdom? No, that's an exaggeration. He would give her a lot of great stuff, right? But this whole thing is odd. 
it's wrong. Something's messed up with this guy. He better be hammered. That's all I have to say. Right? Then it says this. So she went out and said to her mom, what should I ask for? In other words, who's pulling the strings? Mom. Okay, this whole thing is a setup. Mom's initiating that, which is even creepier. Okay, great. Mom sets it up. She says, quote, uh, prompted by her mother, at once the girl hurried into the king with her request, quote, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Betty didn't think that was coming. A lot of teens do that. Is that, is that the whole, hey, what can I give you for Christmas? Well, I would like the dead head of somebody on a plate. That'd be great. He wasn't expecting that. Remember, he's now attached to this John the Baptist buddy guy in jail. Ah, the king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, in other words, because he blabbered and opened his mouth in front of everybody, now he's stuck. He did not want to refuse her. And he ordered that a request be granted. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in prison, brought back his head on a platter, presented it to the girl who carried it to her mother. What they did with it, I've got no idea. But it says, on hearing this, John's disciples came, took his body, laid it in a tomb and buried it. And they went and told Jesus, just like that. By John the Baptist, boom, you're done. What a stupid way to die. What, because of a dance? Okay, why didn't Jesus save him? Well, because God doesn't do miracles. What happened when Peter was in prison? Anybody remember? Oh, look, the shack of the chains fell off in the middle of the night. An angel comes, leads him out, opens all the doors for him, and he walks out. So why didn't he do that with John? You ready for a callous response? Because John was done. Now, that's something that's hard to believe, hard to understand, but pretty realistic. What was John's job? To be the forerunner of the Messiah. Who has already showed up? The Messiah. I guess you don't have a job anymore. Bye-bye. Nobody kills John the Baptist. Not until Jesus says so. When God says, John, you're coming home. It doesn't matter what the scenario is. It doesn't matter how silly it is. John was going home. Let me ask you this. From God's vantage point, would he rather have you in heaven with him or here on earth? Okay, do we not have a different perspective of death than God does? Okay, we got to bend our minds around that. To God, this was not a bad thing. It was, John, can you come here for a second? Great. <laughs> He's there. That's it. All right, now. As John's disciples were leaving, it says in verse 7, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. Now, he's asking them because they didn't really like John all that much and they couldn't quite figure John out. So he begins to ask him some questions. What did you go out to the desert to see? Which is kind of where John ministered was out in the desert. What did you go out to see a reed swayed by the wind? In other words, in the Jordan River, there would be papyrus reeds that would sway in the breeze. He said, is that what you were looking for? A man that did popular opinion, did bid public polls to where he would just shift and move with whatever the issue was at the time. Is that what you were looking for? I don't think so. That's not John. John's solid, steadfast. He's a rock. No. If not, then what did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? Nope. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Where was John? In the desert, wearing scary camel's hair, eating locusts, wild eye. I mean, this guy was just different. Right? Then what did you go out to see? What did you go out to see? A prophet? Oh, yeah. You saw a prophet. And I tell you more than a prophet. 
In other words, most prophets just talk. This guy got to be the forerunner of the Messiah. That's a big deal. And then he quotes Malachi 3.1. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. How cool is that if that was written about you? Wow. Out of all men so far, best one right there. That's a lot of patriarchs to jump over. What did he mean? Well, I don't think it was just the obedience of John. I don't think it was inherent in John. I think it was the gift of the calling that John received. In other words, out of all people before, no matter how cool they were, no matter how amazing they did things, they never got to usher in the Messiah. It's almost like, do you remember when it talked about Mary being great because she was selected to be the mother of God? Do you remember that? Well, in the same way, John is selected to be great because of his task, right? But then he says something really weird. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. What? Here's what I think he's saying. I don't think you understand what you have with the good news. You seem to consider it cheaply, like it's no big deal, like you just got information. No, you didn't just get information. Do you understand that as cool as John was, as amazing as it is to be the forerunner of the Messiah, you know what's better? How about the message of reconciliation of the world? How about knowing the cross? John never knew the cross. John's gone. What about the message that not only am I the Messiah, but I have died for your sins? He didn't have that. He's got none of that. Don't you understand what you have? The least, the little baby kid that says, I want Jesus as my Savior because he died for me, is greater than anything John ever had. He said, don't you get it? Do you understand what a big deal this is? Then he said this, kind of a weird passage, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Now, out of all the commentaries I examined, there's two opinions on what this means. The words forcefully seem to indicate some type of violent act. Okay, so they said, well, it all depends if you take an active or passive. They said, well, some commentators said, well, what I think it means is that the kingdom of God has been attacked from the outside. It's violent. There's been persecution and people getting crazy and it's so hard. Only the one that makes it through the gauntlet, the one that makes it through the pummeling of the world, the flesh, the devil, the, the outside forces, only he will inherit the kingdom of God. Is that the idea? The other one says, no, 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 I believe it's internal. I believe that inside a man, there's so much uh, agonizing and forcing and wrestling with the human nature and the human spirit. It's only the most desperate, the one that has to cling to Jesus that will be saved. Is that what it means? So I'm thinking, I don't know. Both those are decent reads. I'm not quite sure. Then last night, one of the young men from the congregation that did study on this comes up to me and he said, hey, I got a third option. He said, do you realize... That this word that is used right here is the same word that is quoted in Micah 2.13. And it's very possible that Jesus just quoted the beginning of the passage and you would read the rest. And what it says is, one will come to break out and let the others break out with him. In other words, Israel was locked in a sheep pen. 
and they were all struggling and jostling and fighting against each other, waiting to break out, wanting some freedom, wanting to move towards the kingdom of God. But there was no availability until the one would come that would break them out. John the Baptist, boom, breaks out the gate and they all file in after him. Is that what it means? Sounds a lot better than anything I read in commentaries. So what's the truth? I don't know. But I think what God has done and what we need is extraordinary. I said this for all the prophets and the law, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, meaning he's the last Old Testament guy. And if you're willing to accept it, he's the Elijah who was to come. Okay, what does that mean? All right. Keep your finger right there in Matthew and turn backwards one book. Go back to the book of Malachi in the Old Testament. Malachi 4, 5, page 677 in the Bible's handed to you. So keep your hand in Matthew. Jump back one book. Remember in my intro, I told you that the Old Testament closes with what most scholars believe is Malachi. Then there's 400 years of silence. Then John the Baptist shows up. Well, what was the last thing they heard from Malachi? 400 years ago. It's this passage. It says, verse 5, See, I will send you the prophet who? Elijah, before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of their children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Now, out of all the commentaries I read, they all said something I didn't understand, nor do I agree with. If I understand it correctly, I disagree with it. If I understand it incorrectly, what do I know? Here's the deal. They all stand on this side. Lance is going to stand way over here, over here. Now, you need to make a decision, which means you need to take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt because they're brilliant (laughs) and have a lot of degrees. I'm just a guy. All right. So is this right or is this not? Here's their take on it. They said what this passage says is that if the Jewish people would have received Christ as the Messiah, then and only then would John the Baptist become that Elijah that was promised. I'm like, what? No, no, I totally disagree with you. I think that's bogus. Nothing is contingent upon man like that. No way. Jesus always knew he was going to come. They weren't going to accept him. He was going to get rejected. He was going to die. That's kind of called redemption. No, I'm not buying that. No, it's not contingent upon whether you accept him as Elijah. No, he is the Elijah, period. And Jesus was letting everybody know that. Now, let me explain this Elijah thing for a moment because it's different to the Jews. The Jews knew their Old Testament and still do to this day pretty darn well, better than we do. They examine the Old Testament. They know Malachi. And the last thing they heard was that Elijah's going to come. So guess what? When you go to a Seder feast for an Orthodox Jew, or sometimes if you go to their uh, um, Sabbath meal, many Orthodox Jewish households will leave one seat open at the table for who? Elijah. Because they know this Old Testament prophet is supposed to show back up. Why would they believe that? Well, you're like, well, Malachi said so. Yeah. But didn't he die in the Old Testament? Nope, sure didn't. Anybody remember that story? That's absolutely right. He's walking with his protege, the other incredible prophet named Elisha. They're walking along and all of a sudden they're separated by a chariot of fire. All of a sudden out of heaven, this chariot of fire, boom, shows up. Elijah hops in. Bam, he's back up to heaven. Never died. Now, that's why there was such a belief in a visible body 
showing back up of Elijah. Because they're like, he never died, so clearly he's going to come back, and then we'll know that the Messiah is going to show up. Jesus goes, yeah, John the Baptist is it. No, he's not. We even asked him. And in the Bible, it's recorded. They go, are you Elijah? And John goes, no, my name is John. <laughs> I don't know. When we shook hands and I introduced myself as John, I thought that was sufficient, but clearly not. No, I'm not Elijah. Stop saying that. No, no, no. You're the incarnation of John. You're, you're John, right? I mean, you're Elijah, right? You're the guy that came back from the... No, I'm John. So they couldn't tie the two together. And Jesus said, I don't think you understand prophecy real well. Do you understand that prophecy is a cyclical pattern? And what happens is it becomes more and more true and real and literal as it moves forward. So, yes, John is everything we've been waiting for because, hi, I'm the Messiah. Of course, he's the Elijah. Now, many people would cite forward because next year we're going to study the book of Revelation. And so we're going to be looking forward. And many people say, well, wait a second. There's going to be two prophets that are going to show up before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's weird. There's two guys in the Bible that never died. Elijah and Enoch. Are those the two witnesses that show back up? I don't know. Is that the literal fulfillment of this prophecy? Perhaps. But the bottom line is they couldn't fit what they believed with what's happening. And so they rejected it all. He said this. He who has ears, let him hear. In other words, if you only open up your head and your heart, we could do this. And then this next passage, I think, is amazingly perfect for this generation and perhaps for every generation. He said this to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. What does that mean? It means you're a bunch of spoiled brats that don't want to play no matter what we do. What does it mean? It means, so I walked out in the marketplace and what? You looked like you wanted to party. So we threw a party and you don't want to do that. No, because you got a problem. Oh, let's not party right now. It's serious time. All right. So you look like you want to be bummed out. So we sang a funeral song and you won't do that either. In other words, nothing's good enough for you. You got a problem with everything. You got to be contrary on everything I say. Is that what we're doing? He said, because it's really affecting my ministry. Verse 18. For John, meaning John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. In other words, what? He came in the monk guy doing everything right, being the aesthetic, the guy that hangs out in the desert and is hardcore about righteousness and doesn't have any personal blessings or benefits and takes the hit for mankind. He goes the hardcore route, and you say what? He's got a demon. So we tried the sociable route with you. Look at the next one. The son of man came, meaning Jesus came eating and drinking. And they say he here's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So nothing's good enough for you. Is that what I'm hearing? We do it one way. You reject us. We do it another way. You reject us. This isn't about truth anymore, is it? This is about your pride. This is about you being stubborn. It's about you not listening to me. I'm not going to keep jumping through hoops for you. Figure it out. I've done it both ways and nothing's enough. And he said, but wisdom is proved right by our actions. In other words, I guess we'll see. You reject me no matter what I say, but we'll see. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed. Okay. Remember, I told you that most everything Jesus did was in one small region. 
Well, according to my research, I looked up some of the charts in the NIV, and they, re- they record 29 miracles of Jesus. How many do you think he did? What, thousands? And we only got 29 recorded. So this is what, but one one-thousandth of what Jesus did? Didn't one, go- one gospel writer say, if I would have recorded everything Jesus said and did, all the books in the world could not contain it? This is one tiny snippet. He had a pretty busy three years. But when he, out of the 29 recorded miracles, I counted when I researched, 22 of them happened in Galilee. So he is about to denounce cities in the Galilee region. He's going to tell you three towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Jesus' home base of Capernaum. Now, listen to what he says. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. What's the purpose of miracles? To lead you to repentance. It's not to impress you. It's not for flash. It's not for flair. In other words, if he does a bunch of miracles and you don't repent, there's just no point. Then he begins in verse 21 with a rather powerful word. It includes two, at least two dramatic emotions. The word is what? Whoa. One side of it is anger. A holy, righteous burning of anger because he's denouncing them. He's speaking judgment upon them. But the other emotion that it ties in is sorrow, which is I am so angry at you because you're breaking my heart. You will not listen. That's the voice that he's using. Woe to you, Chorazin. That's the city that was one hour north of Capernaum on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. There are no recorded uh, miracles at all in Scripture from the city, but apparently tons were done. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, which is a fishing village on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, the hometown of Andrew and Peter and Philip, these guys. We only have two miracles recorded from that city. The feeding of the 5,000, the healing of a man born blind. Woe to you two cities. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which were famous, wicked, Gentile, Phoenician cities on the coast. If they had done in that city what I did in your city, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, I have spoiled you guys. I did so much amazing, miraculous power of God. How could you not react? They would have fallen on their faces. I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. That word is Hades, the place of the dead. If the miracles that were performed in you, and those were the most recorded of any city, nine. If the miracles that have been performed in you had been performed in Sodom, everybody remember what Sodom is like? hundred miles south, total city of wickedness. It would have remained to this day. In other words, they would have repented and I would have never wiped them off the face of the earth. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Wow. What really makes Jesus mad? Anybody tracking with me yet on this stuff? There's certain things that really irritate Jesus. Is it doing bad things? No, I'm sure that irritates Jesus, but that's not at all what gets his goat. Because as a matter of fact, he just said, 
it's better for Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, which are pretty wicked cities, than for you. So clearly doing bad things is not what really irritates them. As a matter of fact, I hear all the time from people that don't know Jesus yet, one of their common excuses is, I've done too much bad stuff, God could never forgive me. Don't you understand that's what Jesus died for? I mean, that's the point of the cross. So whatever your wickedness count is, he's got more than enough. All right. So, no, it is not the wicked acts that you've done that would keep you far from God. What is it? What is the thing that Jesus can't stand? He can handle sin. He can handle rebellion. He can handle all these things. He died for it. He can cleanse it. It says where sin abounds, grace abounds more. He can always handle sin. What then is the one thing that he cannot stand? Indifference. Apathy. Doing nothing. Blowing it off and moving on. You want to get Jesus mad? Ignore it. Do your own thing. Be so self-absorbed that you're completely bored with this whole God concept. Keep walking your own way. Do your own thing. Every time he does something amazing, ignore it. Oh, now you're on Jesus' hit list. You understand what I'm saying? I've always said I would much rather do ministry in a room full of current, active murderers, rapists, molesters, whatever you want to say, than in front of a room of indifferent people. I have no interest in preaching there. Why? Because hearts will not engage. You give me someone that's sin-loaded and we got something to talk about. You got someone that's bored out of their mind and doesn't care, and I got nothing to say to you. Right here. It's the indifference. He said, I kept jumping through hoops and you will not open your heart. So I'm done with you. Wow. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. In other words, those intellectually proud. He said, Christianity has never been about, are you brilliant enough to get it? That's not Christianity. Christianity is for the common man. It's for the child. No, no, no. That's not what we're doing. You have revealed it, revealed them to what? Little children. What's so awesome about little kids? They'll do things like you can tell them a a Jesus story. And then you go, well, you need Jesus to go to heaven. They go, okay, let's do it right now. I mean, it's just absolute engagement. It's like right now. Why not? Got nothing to lose. Let's go. And Jesus is like, where are those hearts? That's what makes me smile. All you, well, I don't know, what are you, you going to answer this? Are you going to answer this? I mean, God, you didn't put it in proper perspective. And I don't really like the way you wrote the Bible because it doesn't answer all my questions. And really, you snob? Knock it off. Figure it out. Are you going to engage with what you see? Or are you going to wait to get all your questions answered? That might just be in hell. You understand what I'm saying? We need to understand that God has done enough. It is a wicked and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. Welcome to us. We ask for a sign. Come on, God, jump through another hoop. Come on, come on, do it for me. Then I'll believe in you. Really? How about nothing? I already did enough jumping. All things have been committed to me by the Father, Jesus said. In other words, I'm not on my own agenda here. I'm on God's agenda. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and to those whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. In other words, oh Jewish people, you want so badly to claim God as your Father, but you reject me. Sorry, it's a package deal. 
You accept me, you get us. You reject me, we're gone. That's pretty bold. You only say that if you're right. And then verse 28 through 30, the last three verses are perhaps some of the most strongest in all of Scripture for both the believer and the non-believer. And I will tell you this, I will guarantee you this. If you can grasp what we are about to read, your life will be transformed right now and for the rest of your life. How many how many times do I ever give you a guarantee like that? Never. So what's the catch? Here's the catch. I don't understand it. I haven't grasped it. I'm still learning. I'm still growing up. So you're going to look at my life and go, Lance, I'm not seeing that in you. You're right. Because I don't get it. I'm not willing to engage this far. If you are, you will be free today and forever. What did he say? Come to me, he said. What's that mean? It means get up and get over here. That's what it means. Come to me, all you who are what? Weary. Are you tired? That word means from hard labor, meaning how's that working out? You trying to save yourself. You doing the good religious thing? Exhausting. All right. Keep doing that. Let's see where that goes. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. That means loaded down or weighted with worldly and religious problems. And I will give you rest. Isn't that what we long for? Isn't deep down do we long that our souls are okay, that we're right with God? Isn't that a big tension within our spirits that we're somehow always disappointing the Lord? Now, some of you don't care. Well, you have yet to walk with Jesus. I get that. But that you will care if you continue to engage with him. But we have this tension in our spirits. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now, what's a yoke? Before we understand the metaphor, we got to understand the literal. What's a yoke? Well, it's a thing in the egg. No, it's not. Here's the thing. It's a piece of wood you place over an oxen or a cow or whatever it is. And then you place one below their neck and you strap the two together. And there's a little hole cut out for their neck. All right. And then what's the purpose of it? Well, you can put another guy on there and they can pull together at the same time to pull the burden or the load or the weight. So they would move forward and drag the wagon or the plow. That was kind of the concept. Now, by Jesus's time, this had become a metaphor that everybody knew in the Jewish world. So all the rabbis would say to those they wanted to be their disciples, take my yoke upon you, which means submit under my authority and learn from me. So this is rabbi language. Everybody knew it. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That word in Greek means disciple, meaning become my disciple, become my learner. For I am gentle and humble in heart. In other words, what? I'm not abusive and I'm not going to lord it over you. That's not what kind of God I am. I am gentle and humble in heart. I'm not here to make your life worse. I'm your solution. For my yoke is what? Easy. Is that how you feel Christianity is? Is Christianity easy? One commentator said the word krestos in Greek can also mean tailor fit or well fitted. In other words, it went through and said what the carpenters would do when they make a yoke. And what did Jesus do for a living? Carpenter. They would measure the neck of the oxen and measure the wood and they would cut it to tailor fit the oxen 
so that it wouldn't chafe, it wouldn't pull, it wouldn't, it's not one size fits all. You make the yoke for the person, for the animal that you're fitting. In other words, and my yoke is tailor fit to who you are. That you understand, I built you. I know who you are. I know what you can handle. I know how my spirit works within you. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Then why do I keep hearing voices say things like, Christianity is so hard, man. It's so hard. I don't even know if I can keep going. I just think I'm going to give up on this whole Christianity thing. It's just too hard. Where'd you get that from? And why does it sound a lot like my own voice? Okay, do you understand we got it backwards? We got it wrong? Christianity is not hard. Christian subculture is hard. That's different. Christianity is not hard. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. If we do it Christ's way, it's lightness of being. Then why is it so hard? Guess who's the problem? Us. Here's why. We got an enormous pack on our back that we carry around every day full of garbage that Jesus never said to carry. I would suggest to you that stereotypically that if your life is difficult, I will tell you this. 95% of all the stuff that you freak out about and worry about is your own self-created drama. Jesus never asked you to carry that. But every day you load another pack in there, you load another rock in there and you keep shoving this stuff in there. Is that getting heavy for you? Because Jesus said, come to me. And I'll take that pack right off your back. Do you have the ability to people read? That's something that God gave me. It's kind of a cool thing to be able to people read that within a maybe a minute or so or a couple of dialogue, I'll pretty much know a lot about you. One of the things that I do is I stare into people's eyes. And when I look into people's eyes, I can see what kind of weight they're carrying in their spirit, in their soul. And some people are really heavy in heart. Some people are not so. But you know who the lightest people I've ever seen are? It's one category of people. There's one specific group of people that almost seem to float on air. They like levitate when you see them. You know who those people are? Brand new Christians. Here's why. Let's say I did an altar call, which I don't because I'm a jerk. Okay, I get it. Okay, let's say I did an altar call where you could actually get saved. That would be super. Okay, I don't. That's between you and God. Figure it out in your own seat. Okay, here we go. If we had an altar right here, we've done this a couple times, and I have watched people rise up. I say, do you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Boom, they stand right up, and literally they look like they have a million pounds of weight on their back. They can't walk forward normally. Their shoulders are hunched over, and when they hit the altar, boom, they collapse. Right. It's like a thousand pound weight has just been crushed on them. They're right there. And I swear to you, while they're sobbing now, not everybody sobs not everybody falls. But this has been pretty consistently an issue that I've seen while they're sobbing. It seems like proverbially, metaphorically, thousand pound tears come out of their face and start falling down. And I watch all this weight pour out of them. And by the time they are done engaging with Jesus for the first time to understand what grace is, to understand what mercy is, to understand that Jesus died for all their garbage in the past and all their garbage in the future, they rise up with their back straight, their shoulders back, and they look lighter than air. I look at their eyes and all of a sudden they look like, boom, I could take on the world. Let's go. 
And there is nothing that is a problem. Nothing else matters because they just engaged with their Jesus. And he took care of every single problem they've ever had. That's pretty amazing. You guys, I get so jealous when I see that. I go, gosh, why can't I live there? Right? Because here's the truth of the matter. The walk from the altar back to the door weighs about 20 pounds. By the time you hit that door and you hit the lobby, you put a whole bunch more stuff back on your pack. Which I don't know why we do that. Oh, what about retirement and the kids? And oh my gosh, I don't know what's going on with my job. And I, man, what are people going to think? I just went up in front of them like balling, right? And I'm a guy. And I don't know if they're going to think that all of a sudden they think I'm a sissy and I got a job. How should I walk? And Really? That's what, that's what we're going to do? That's how we're going to live? Because it's not working out real well for us. Jesus set you free to be light. No, Lance, Jesus said persecution, difficulty, pain, trouble. Yeah, but those are external. I'm not talking about external. External is still going to be chaotic and smash into you and attack you. Yeah, you're right. But have you ever had a day where you learned some information earlier that day that no matter what happened that day, you don't care? It just washes off your back. You are so pumped and so excited about whatever it is. New promotion at work or, oh my gosh, now we're going to have a child or whatever it is. All of a sudden you're boom. You're so excited that no matter what happens in your day, you don't care. That's how we ought to live. Do I live there? Nope. I'm anxiety boy. (laughs) Told you I didn't get it. But that's why we've been set free. Yeah. How do we live more like that? I don't know. But when it's why I come to church every week. Right. It's why I study the word during the week. It's why you get involved in a small group and you learn. It's why you chase after Jesus. It's why you read. It's why you pray. Because I'm learning to get rid of my garbage. You see, Christianity is so much about letting go. Not about adding on. Jesus goes, hey, that's not really important. Can you let that go? But that's my, that's my, yeah, I know. Can you let that go? Because we don't, we don't need that. We've got to go light. Come on. Let's cast off the sin that so easily entangles all the stuff that hinders you. Can we go? Because we can run really fast. You ready to go? Let's do this. It's going to be like we're going to lift off. You ready? Can you dump that garbage. Come on. Come on. It's not about what people think. It's not about this. It's not about that. Let's go, go, go. Come on. Let's pick up speed. Christianity is not supposed to be hard. It's supposed to be easy. If we could only wrap our minds around that, we would be free. Jesus did all the heavy lifting. So we don't have to. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. And Father, for revealing through your Son your amazing love for us and your ability to cast off all the garbage that we have found in weak religion. Lord, pure and faultless religion is certainly what we chase after. But not the garbage that we made up. We're not here for tradition. We're not here for subculture. We are here for you. We ask, Lord, that none of us would leave here today without having the weights removed that we are willing to surrender right here and right now. We commit to our lives to you today and ask that you would cleanse us, that you would heal us, that you would make us free. In the name of Jesus.